What's up? This is Ali Einhorn, host of the Talk House podcast. Today I'm joined by... Hi, it's Amy Rose Spiegel, Talk House Music's Editor-in-Chief. And we have some very exciting news. We are so stoked to tell you that we've been nominated for a Webby Award. Woo! We've been honored in the podcast and digital audio category for Best Individual Episode. This was a very powerful episode featuring Rose McGowan and Meredith Graves in conversation. Now, you probably know that Rose and Meredith are both really vocal feminists. This conversation is especially interesting because it takes place just before sexual harassment exploded into a wider national conversation. Loyal listeners, in case you missed this, which I know you didn't, you can check it out at iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page. And if you like it, there's actually two components to this Webby Award. In the first, the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences selects whom they think should be the winner. But in the second, you do. So if you like the episode, please go to the Webby Award site and vote for us. You can also find the direct voting link at TalkHouse.com. And while you're there, why not check out Meredith and Rose's incredible past contributions? Rock the vote! We want you. This is Elliot Einhorn. Welcome back to the TalkHouse podcast. Today I'm joined by... Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of TalkHouse Film. Listeners, you are tuned into our blockbuster double feature starring Oscar-winning directors William Friedkin and Guillermo del Toro. In part one, we heard first-person accounts of the ups and downs of award season and about how Hollywood musicals are the pinnacle of cinema. Nick Dawson, what's coming up in this episode? This is the big stuff in this episode. Oh, boy. It is the big stuff. Life, death religion, evil, emotion versus reason. And of course, Friedkin's new documentary, The Devil and Father Amorth, which is about a real-life exorcist and a real-life exorcism. It is fascinating. Oh, there were some terrifying tales about the filming of this documentary. Yeah, some of the stuff that Friedkin saw is pretty mind-blowing. And it's just a real pleasure for me to, to listen to them talking. And it was clearly a pleasure for them to talk to one another so much so that they pushed back their schedules considerably so they could continue talking, which is why we have a bumper two-parter. So should we dive into part two? Let's do it. Were you raised Catholic? I was raised very Catholic. And today? No, no, I'm not. I, I mean, I made my own hodgepodge. But that, that's a question I was going to ask you because of the documentary and because you've seen enough weird stuff in the world, uh, what, is, <laughs> what is your cosmology right now? I believe very strongly in the teachings of Jesus. Mm -hmm. They don't come to me through... The structure. The structure or any particular priest or bishop or officer of the church. Mm -hmm. They're people. Yeah. And uh, I, I kind of, though I don't go through life as a skeptic... Mm -hmm. I think anything is possible, anything. As Hamlet says to Horatio... There are more things. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, yes. Horatio. That's probably the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. I just think there are more things than I could possibly uh, understand, but I'm curious about them. I strongly believe in the teachings of Jesus, and I know from reading the history of first century Jerusalem, mm -hmm. the many histories by Josephus and um, Philo and Eusebius, that there was a man named Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And basically what they say about him is that he 
went among the people, he was beloved of the people, and he healed the sick. That's basically what they say. And then there's a 12-year gap in his life. The people who wrote the New Testament were not writing history. No. They were creating a religion. Yes. And I think they took some things like healing powers that were not understood mm -hmm. and transformed them into the supernatural. Oh, and, and each of the books is so different. Each of the New Testament books is so different. Is They deify or they just chronicle. Some of them make him incredibly human. Some of them making him incredibly superhuman. And it's, it's almost like they're talking about uh, different characters. The two most interesting people to me who I've ever read about or heard about are Hitler and Jesus. <laughs> two people who, who took the world into different places and different spaces and they were just people they were hitler the question is is somebody who does what hitler did was he just sick uh was he so sick that he was a monster or uh was he possessed was there some other power driving him because everything he did to prosecute that war was self-defeating, you know? And he took an entire race of very intelligent people with him, of accomplished people, and they followed a madman into hell. One of the forms of control that is the most basic, in my opinion, is the division between us and them, both on quotes, us and them. And what that allows is... Uh, You know, when you create a dichotomy, when you, when you do not understand that we are all just us, no quotation marks, you know, uh, it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful form of control that blinds people and objectifies, quote unquote, the other. Because immediately you can, you, you reduce the polychrome nature of any person into one word whether it's a word that is racist, whether it's a word that is sexist or classist, that word exonerates you to then behave in an inhuman fashion to that person. And I think the achievement of channeling love, which Jesus did through his teachings, forget about any denomination, just the teachings or the dark power of channeling hatred, which... Hitler was able to uh, harness by this division. If you see, the, the, this is the point, this is the fulcrum in which both movements uh, rely. Jesus says, do unto others, which means there's only us, you know? You cannot exonerate yourself from being cruel unless you admit people being cruel to you and welcome it, which is not the case. And Hitler says them, them yes. and us. And that division allows that brutality. Those are two monumentally different, but at the end of the day, based on, on the opposite sides of one principle. But how did a guy like that do it? 
He was uh, he was a homeless man in the mm -hmm. streets of yeah. Vienna, begging for his meals, trying to become an opera designer. Yeah. Unsuccessfully, his paintings are terrible, and lack Gish. people and uh, lack skill. And he's making these speeches. Where did this come from? He was a failed. Uh, uh, little uh, uh, corporal. Well, the, the complexity, the complexities of the confluence of historical, economical, social. A bunch of things that uh, came together. Uh, it, it, it is a perfect storm. Yeah, it is a perfect storm. And historically, mankind has found itself in perfect storms on both sides of the equation so many times, and that's why uh, I think that the the, the study of history which is, uh, is not cyclical, but the patterns are cyclical. They do repeat themselves. And, 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 and huge masses of people can follow uh, a quote-unquote false messiah again and again, guided by the same wrong principles because of emotion rather than reason, you know? There is, there is a, the power of emotion... Uh, in a positive way, moves you to empathy. Emotion is more powerful than reason, isn't it? Well, it it it, it trumps reason. I don't know. I don't know if it's more powerful. It's more persuasive. Mm -hmm. It is more persuasive. I don't think it's more powerful. I think that when you when you get to a point with reason, you actually change permanently. And when you get to a point by emotion, you change transitionally. But you get you you literally you cannot get intoxicated by thought. You actually sober up by thought, <laughs> but you can get intoxicated by emotion. What do you believe now that, that you have sort of fallen away from any doctrinaire mm -hmm. Catholicism? Mm -hmm. When you see like my documentary, which you yes. saw in Venice mm -hmm. about an exorcism, how do you uh, respond to something like that? Because It, it comes down to the very core of, yes. of belief that Christ has empowered his priests to drive out a devil. It's that simple. Yes. But they're calling on Christ. They don't believe that they're doing the exorcism. They are calling on Jesus mm -hmm. to exorcise this demon. I, I tell you, to, to me, being Mexican, I have witnessed... Strange things all of my life. I do know that the multiple colors of life, many of them are hard to believe in. Mm -hmm. But I, I do believe that at the end of the day, uh, we tend to divide uh, more than the Eastern philosophies do. We tend to say good and evil. Uh, and I think that the world is made by, by a force that destroys, destroys and creates. I do think there is a struggle between a destructive force and a creative force constantly in our lives. I do believe that. I, uh, and I, whether that manifests itself as a spiritual force, like in the case of the documentary, all I know is that we are vulnerable to those forces. But seeing the documentary, what it is, is, is really a punch in the gut. Which, in, which, by the way, you specialize in. You specialize in in all your filmography. You punch in the gut <laughs> real well. 
I tried to make this film without any style or technique. In fact, I came upon it quite by accident. I didn't yeah. intend to How do did it. you come upon it? I was in a little town in Italy called Luca, mm -hmm. which is the home of Puccini. Mm -hmm. And I was getting the Puccini Prize for my work in opera. I've directed a lot of operas. And it was at Puccini's house in Luca. And I was supposed to be in this lovely little town for eight days doing master classes and interviews. And someone at a gathering that was taking place when I first arrived there, casually mentioned that Luca was a 35-minute drive from Pisa. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see the Leaning Tower, which I had never <laughs> seen, which is... I saw it once. Yes, yeah. it's, it's very uh, del Toro-ish. <laughs> very striking. Uh, and um, someone else mentioned that, oh, yes, and there's a one-hour flight to Rome from mm -hmm. Pisa, mm -hmm. which it was not from Luca. And this just came into my consciousness. And I thought, geez, I've got to be here for eight days. Who do I want to see in Rome? I have a lot of friends in Rome. And I wrote to a theologian friend of mine, Andrea Manda. And I, I, I wrote him an email saying, I'm here for eight days. Uh, I'd love to see you. Do you think it would be possible for me to meet with either the Pope or Father Amort. <laughs> Those are the two choices. Right. And he could do that. And he said, well, the Pope isn't here at, <laughs> at, at this time, but Father Amort would love to see you. He'd love to meet you. And he was known as the Vatican exorcist. His title was Exorcist for the Diocese of Rome. Mm -hmm. And he had written seven or eight books about his work. They're all in 40, 50 printings around the world. And he had written a page about my film, The Exorcist, in which he said the special effects were over the top, but the film did help people to understand his work. And so he was happy to meet with me. So I collapsed my time there to seven days, and I went to Rome for a day, met him in the morning at his, where he lived in a simple room at the home of the Pauline priests, And we had a wonderful conversation. And then I went back to Los Angeles. And I, w I went to the Vanity Fair Oscar dinner. Mm -hmm. And I was standing on the porch with Graydon Carter, who is a friend. And he asked me uh, where I'd been recently, what I've been doing, what I was up to. And I told him I had just met the Vatican exorcist. Uh -huh. <laughs> and he almost had a heart attack. He uh -huh. said, would you be able to write about this guy? Would you be able to interview him for Vanity Fair? I said, Vanity Fair is a Hollywood magazine. I don't want to do... He said, no, I'll give you as much space as you want. And so I got in touch with the head of the Pauline priests and went back and interviewed him. And I asked him at the end of this interview, which I published in Vanity Fair... Yeah. Uh, if he would ever let me witness an exorcism, which had never been allowed by the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. not to my knowledge, not, to, not published anywhere, that they would let, and rightly so, that they would let someone, it's not an entertainment. Yes. You know, it's not a show. And um, to my amazement, Father Amort agreed to let me witness an exorcism that he was doing on May 1st of 2016. 
was the ninth exorcism of this 46-year-old woman who was an architect. And she believed she was possessed. And he had exercised her eight times, once a month prior, no success. And then I pushed my luck and I asked him, I sent another note saying, could I film this? Thinking, absolutely not. not. And uh, I didn't want to push it too far because I did want to experience this. But this is the same guy asking the question, can I shoot this in Iraq? Yeah. All those, I mean, it's the exact right. same spirit. Yeah. And word came back that Father Amort would allow me to film it, but without a crew, no other people in the room, and no lights. Mm -hmm. And so I got a little Sony CX still camera that shot high-definition video, and I sat two feet away from the two of them. And I filmed it more or less like a home movie. I had no intention of doing anything with it. I thought it would be valuable to see what this was because I had never seen an exorcism, obviously, before I made the movie. But you come in on the ninth. This is important for me. You're, you, know, you come in on the ninth time. This is not a single location. This is not a sustained uh, number of days. You come in on the ninth. This is, by now, for lack of a better analogy, there is a certain routine. I mean, they see each yes. other once a month. Hello, how are you? Now yes. we're going to exercise. So how is that? That dynamic? That dynamic. She obviously, at the point at which I filmed her, was very much believing in the possibility that she could be liberated. It mm -hmm. had become a kind of routine. When she walked into the room with her parents, her mother, her father, and her fiancé, mm -hmm. I thought, what in the hell is this woman doing here? Mm -hmm. She's totally pulled together. She's normal. She's attractive in the way of an Italian movie actress mm -hmm. and smart, an architect. And she was very pleasant. I was introduced to her and her family. Mm -hmm. She knew I was filming something and she was fine with it because Father Amort said it was okay. And then all of a sudden she slipped into this trance-like condition. And if she was acting, it's the best acting I've ever seen mm -hmm. because she was completely out of control with five guys holding her down. Five guys. Five guys, strong guys. Only a couple were priests. The others were muscle that Father Amort mm -hmm. always had in case something happened. It gets physically rough. So, so she walks in when she slips, as you say, into this other state. Is it uh, induced or she just snaps into it? She gradually evolves into it and she's lost. I so can that tell was you. her daily life. Not daily. Because, you know, the misconception from my film, The Exorcist... Is that you stay possessed. You stay in this way and continue to deteriorate. It's something that historically comes and goes, attacks like seizures. Mm -hmm. And she had a, 
a fairly routine life in a very small town, 200 miles southeast of Rome. But she would start to get these attacks mostly around the Catholic holidays, mm, mm. Easter, that, Lent, that so Christmas, others. And then they just came on unwittingly. So she was seeing Father Amort once a month. But what is fascinating to me is that her things would be triggered by Catholic holidays or in the case of that session you witnessed by her being in the presence of uh, the, fa the father, right, the, the, the priest. Yes, I think there was something to that. It's, it's very hard to explain inherent belief What did you disbelief. Feel? What did you feel? First, I was terrified. Mm -hmm. When I saw her assume this vicious personality change from the sweet person that I met and the quiet, calm person into something like a raging animal, uh, I was absolutely terrified and I didn't know what was going to happen. And that quickly turned into empathy I quickly began to feel for her and yeah. what she must be going through. And that gave you a, a, a different tool. Well, I didn't want to exploit it in any way. And I, it took me a long time to want to even show it to anybody, let alone put it out in a film. What caused me to put it out as a film was the opinions of the neurologists and the psychiatrists who underpinned it. They gave the, it a narrative, too. With their science. And I thought, well, there's more to this. There, there, there's just something more to this. I don't know what it is. I still can't say that I believe that this is easily qualifiable as a sickness or evil. I don't know. If it's evil, she is the one being attacked. Mm -hmm. She's not attacking. Mm -hmm. she, while she's lashing out, she is not trying to hurt anyone. The second time I went to see her in this church in Alatri, she was lashing out and all over the place and the church was empty and there was no priest. Just her boyfriend holding her down. He was a very powerful guy who held her around the throat. She was in a folding chair, mm -hmm. the throat and the waist, and she was pulling him with her and dragging him toward me. And one of the things she said in Italian, the boyfriend was saying, we want you to give this film back. We don't want this ever to be shown. And at, when I first met him, he was very friendly and respectful. And now he was out of control. And she was yelling out from the chair, no, in a different voice. I want this to be seen. I want this to be seen. And this was not her voice. Mm. And I know she didn't want it to be seen, she herself. Father Amort told me, and I excluded this from the documentary, that... She spoke to him in Latin a large part of the time, which he mm -hmm. did, never studied. Mm -hmm. And at one time she talked to him about his own sins. Wow. She accused him of his own sins. And they were real. And they were real. And I didn't 
ask him to delineate them for me. No. I didn't want him to tell me what they were. Mm -hmm. I was curious, but I, that was a, a bridge too far. Yes. I have no right to ask him what his sins were that he claimed were spot on from her. It, it is, I think when we, when we face a mystery, and I've had a few strange encounters, I, all I say, I, I, I rather than making, reduce them to an explanation, I just say, at the moment, we don't know what it is. I mean, and I think, I think that's, the, the, there's no one religion in my view of the world and all that it encompasses. There's not one religion that can explain it all. Not even the agglomeration of all religions can give you a real answer about it. But what is fascinating is, I think, to place yourself in a, well, in a way where you are open to the mystery. And, and that has been your position. You, you said it in observing the world as a filmmaker. You open yourself to the moments that occur in front of you and you watch them with curiosity, empathy, open-mindedness, but you don't shy away from the brutality of it either. I mean, when you chronicle, and whether it's this documentary or your first movie, it doesn't matter. When you chronicle, you chronicle all sides. And that is an interesting philosophical position for a filmmaker to say, I'm not going to shape the material in as much as I can. And I wanted to, to, to ask you, in this instance, you had a camera between you and the subject, but you had this feeling. When you felt empathy, uh, did the fear go away? Yes. That is, to me, the most important thing of this conversation because I do believe there are two, two forces in the world. One is fear and one is love. Fear leads to hatred. I think one precedes the other. And I do believe that empathy, when you say, I understand, you say, I love. And when you say, I empathize, you say, I understand. And it stripes away the fear. And when we were talking about Jesus and Hitler, and we talk about fulcrum, I think that's what gives, concedes those two sides their power. When you say the other, you're not interested in understanding. You're not interested in empathy. You just want them gone in any way you can. And when Jesus says, do unto others, uh, uh, he says, walk in, walk in their shoes. What does it feel to that? And empathy immediately invokes love. It Absolutely. is an invocation. It first occurred to me when I saw these symptoms be manifest, I thought she could come out of that chair and attack me mm -hmm. with great strength, mm -hmm. great strength beyond what you would think she possessed. And that was my first concern. And I could barely keep the camera in focus because it was such a violent upsurge that built. And then gradually, my thoughts all went to her and what this woman must be suffering. And I had no fear. I had no fear of what could happen. Because you were not thinking me. of you, you were no. thinking of her. Right. And how can she go through this? Yes. And what conclusion is there to something like this? How do you get rid of this? How do, and you take this kid who was bombing in Austin, Texas. Yes. Is that sick? 
or is it evil? Is he sick or evil? Is it a combination of both? Because there are people who are mentally sick but do not manifest evil. Well, the, the, I think the forces of the world exist above us. I do believe that, but I do believe that every act and every choice we make in our day is an invocation of sorts. It, it can be a road rage or a personal interaction, and you can always, every single time, choose between empathy or hatred. But you have to make a bomb. Of course. Road rage, if, if you, you can just give in if, to your anger. If you, if you switch for long enough to fear and hatred, you will be a pure instrument of them. I do That's believe interesting. that. interesting. Now, believe is that, that sick? You or know, is it, is, in your worldview, mm -hmm. is there a place for good and evil? There is a place for choice. And I think at the end of the day, when you, when you go to the essence of what I remember uh, as, as an incredibly powerful notion in, in the Catholic uh, teachings that I learned as a kid was free will. That, that free will is at the end of the day the one tool that was given to us as humans to choose. And I think it's, a, it's an accumulation of choices. Really. But at the end, the there forces are, some, are there. Some people can't make that choice. They're blocked. Yeah. The I, guy who goes up on a tower mm -hmm. in Austin, Texas, and shoots, you know, 17 or 18 people from the rooftop of a building. Well, of the many mechanisms, of the many defense mechanisms that are known to psychology, and I'm sure I'm misinterpreting what I've read and all that. I believe there's one called sublimation. And sublimation is the highest form of defense mechanism in which you choose to say, this happened to me, therefore I will prevent it happening to someone else. As opposed to the other choice, which is, this happened to me, so I will enact the same cruelty or the same brutality onto others. So there, that is a switch. And, and, and I, I don't know how to differentiate in a quantifiable way between the spiritual and the physical choice or the pedestrian choice of saying, I will not do that. It's very difficult. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the answer in time will come and a hundred years from now, we will be looked upon as the Middle Ages. <laughs> if we're still here. <laughs> if we're still here. You remember. Shall we survive? Not long ago. Yeah. Can I have another coffee, Mike? I'm going to let people know I'm late for lunch. Go ahead. I'm so happy with this. Oh, this is great. No, go I ahead. Mean, take a I mean, I, I, I got I to see if, if I can be late. <laughs> it's a lunch with, if you can't. No, this is... This is <laughs> you, you said not long ago. You texted me. Yeah. Out of the blue, yeah. you sent me an email. Mm -hmm. And it said, do you think the apocalypse is here? <laughs> and it took me weeks to frame a response to you because <laughs> I hadn't thought about it. Yes. And I'm thinking, what does he mean? Yes. And I, uh, but I thought rather than ask you what you meant, I would just stop and think about... <laughs> current events. 
And I thought, you know, then when you got nominated, I think I, <laughs> I wrote back to you, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> no, you know, what happens, what happens to, uh, it happens with every generation. I mean, the quote-unquote end of the world has come so many times in a social way where people say 1901, end of the world, turn of the century, turn of the century panics, happen in the Middle Ages, happens with the advent of a comet in the sky, you know, so many times. But uh, obviously in our lifetimes, I mean, the world ends with each of us. That's a yeah. fact. And the world is born with each of us. Everybody falls in love for the first time. Everybody's wounded for the first time. But, but there is a sense uh, right now to me, I mean, as close as we've come to having cosmic supernaturally powers, is, it starts after we split the atom. When we, when we can go that deep into the blueprint and change the layout at that cosmic level where we say, okay, we're going to take an atom, we're going to fragment it, and this is what is going to happen. There has never been the marriage of power and emotion socially at a, such an excitable level as it is today. I think the social discourse is, uh, there's a great word in Spanish, which is crispado. And there's no, there's no equivalent I, think, I can think of in English. It's excitable is the, the closest it comes. But there is a level... The pitch of the social conversation at a global level it, it is so high. And, and the instruments at our disposal are so, like, I do believe that scientifically we are a little past the cliff of ecological disaster. I mean, we're in it. I do believe that. I do believe that should a war come to us and should it involve nuclear weapons, we would be... We, we're not going to end up in one day. I think we're gonna, it's going to be slow. It's going to take years. And they're going to be very bad years. Uh, and, and I think about it. I find myself thinking about it. That's why <laughs> that strange email out of the blue. Because what, what I find fascinating when we, whenever we interact is I love having conversations with you. You are not a casual chatter. <laughs> you think things. And we answer, you know, and it, it is truly a, a, an opportunity you don't have often in this world. Well, the thing you talk about, the entry into ecological disaster mm -hmm. has come through scientific progress. Yes. You know, the need to push forward in splitting the atom mm -hmm. and in everything that followed that to invent a better way to drive a car, an easier way, with no thought of Robot it. dogs that open doors. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, there, there are some, some things that... But there was, in the 1800s, and no, in the 1700s, there was a study published in Europe where a, a very serious scientist calculated the mass of feces produced by a human uh, and uh -huh. the amount of water in the sea, and this, and he pr he produced a, an incredibly persuasive document that that basically said we were going to shit ourselves to death. <laughs> and I wonder sometimes if our science is that primitive. When when I, had, I mean, I hope there is a loophole in this scientific theory because if not, 
the disaster ecologically that we're causing, it, it is irreversible. It's irreversible. For the world as we know it, as we know it. I think so, Guillermo, because so you stop burning coal. You stop using fossil fuels. fuels. You know, you, you stop all of it. You go to electric. You go, to, you, you solar. don't. Solar. You Wind. don't fly airplanes mm -hmm. anymore. You, you turn the clock back, you know. Or at least stop it. Or stop the clock. I think it's too late. Mm -hmm. I think it's too late to reverse anything for a future generation. Mm -hmm. It's embedded now. It's in the atmosphere. Look outside. You can't see the next little town out there, yeah. which is Century City. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's always like that, not just on a rainy day. It's mm -hmm. in the air in Los Angeles and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Where do you go to escape this? Well, that's, a, that's the main point. When you think of human ambition and the very base, entirely abstract notion of power that is causing this disaster. When you say, whoever controls the world, whoever it is, you can go with a conspiracy theory or not. The, the, the aim of their game is abstract at this point. You're talking about billionaires. You're talking about these decisions are made by people that have a wealth that is inconceivable, unspendable by any human measure, by no measure. You could, you could try to do an Alexander the Great level campaign and empire construction, and the money would be enough. And those decisions are simply done by the voracity of accumulation. And then you say, where, if, if you had a coffee with these people, you would say, okay, if the earth ends, where would you want to spend that money? <laughs> What mm -hmm. are you going to do with it? And these are notions that when you're a, a, a person on the street, you do wonder. You say, okay, let's say that you become the richest man on a barren earth. Where are you going to go? Is the moon's still not terraformed. <laughs> And even if you do, it's not going to be as great as Wyoming. <laughs> And you still have to look into a mirror. <laughs> yes. What is the, your role as a filmmaker in this environment? Is it simply yeah. to provide entertainment, mm. to uh, explore your talent, mm. Uh, obviously, you cannot make a film with a no. with a specific message no, in mind yet. and get people to watch it. Well, Stephen, if you Soder, have a, if you have something you want to say, it has to be through metaphor in some way. Well, I think after 40, you're literally like a clock. I think after 40, the goals change in a way, and and they're not. You know, Steve Soderbergh said something beautiful. He said. When he retired, one of the times he retired, because he always retires and comes back. But he said, if the entire canon of Shakespeare has not changed <laughs> mankind for the good, I don't have a hope, right? And I think he has a point to, mm -hmm. to, to, in many ways. But, but nevertheless, it is not, again, we, we talk about a fulcrum. I don't think it ever ends. It's a seesaw. You go up, you go down, and the only thing you can say is, I'm a force for up, or I'm a force for down. In my case, uh, I try to do movies that bring one form of joy or another, you know, uh, and they can be big and they can be seen as uh, 
childish or they can be seen as deep or they can be seen as superficial. It doesn't matter. To the people that they connect with, they connect at a, at a really deep, beautiful level. And in the case of shape, I needed it to heal myself. I needed that movie. I, three times in my life, the movies I've made basically were movies that I was going to say, this is the last movie I make because, you know, and it was Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, and Shape of Water. Those three movies I made because I urgently needed to heal on one aspect or another. And with Shape, I, I really felt it was putting something beautiful into the world. Is the world going to react as one and say, it is beautiful? No, impossible. Pretty much. But, but you, get, you get percentages. Some people Pretty will much. hate it, some people will love it. But you say to the people that love it, Is it healing? Like I think in terms of songs, there are always in our lives, and you mentioned a couple today, that song that you sing that kind of heals you. <laughs> it can be as simple as you are my sunshine, my little sunshine. You make me happy when skies are great. They're great, you know, or it can be a standard. But I think when film is at its best, it has the power of a, a great song that you almost invoke an emotion. When you say one of your movies, when you say The Wizard of Oz, they all come at once, like a song. You know the feeling mm -hmm. of that movie. You know, Citizen Kane, same. And it can be Tom Waits, or it can be Frank Sinatra, or it can be The Beatles, but they have that power to, to have that diversity and emotion. And that's, I think, what attracts me to cinema. When I see something that is to be judged in purely technical ways or purely dramaturgical ways, I'm not interested. If, if I can explain what, why a movie is great, maybe it's not that great. And if I can explain why a movie is bad, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe there's something, you know, many movies I've seen that I don't like the first time, and 10 years later I see it and I weep. And I say, my God, was I blind. You've changed. Yeah, I've changed. And what, what we do is we just put those songs out in the world for people to catch them at one time or another, and may they be used to heal. Yeah. And, and I think the things that you do speak to you. Yes. They speak to you and you try to impart them. You try to communicate them. And that's, uh, you have done it so many times. That's what we do. We climb on the top of a monolith and shout, and sometimes people gather at it. Sometimes people don't show up. And sometimes up. we fall off. <laughs> I think that's a good way to end this. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure. God bless you. <laughs> And thank you and God bless you to William Friedkin and Guillermo del Toro. That was an incredible conversation. What a pleasure to have them on the podcast. Thanks again to our partners for this episode, Vanity Fair. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and everything we do here on the TalkHouse podcast, make your voice heard. Head over and vote for the TalkHouse podcast at the Webbies. You'll find a direct link at TalkHouse.com. And of course, while you're online, on the internets, hit us up on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we have a bunch of awesome stuff on YouTube. And of course, don't forget TalkHouse.com for your daily written content. Today's episode is recorded by Gideon Brower and co-produced by Mark Yoshizumi. And of course, 
William Friedkin's documentary The Devil and Father of Morth is in theaters from April 20th. Make sure to hit that. But also, we have a pretty incredible episode coming up very soon. Ellie, do you just want to quickly tease that one? I'd love to. We have none other than Chelsea Manning in conversation with Nadia Tolukno from Pussy Riot. Wow. Yeah. That should be pretty amazing. It's I will. Big. I will be downloading that one. Will you be leaking it? No, no, I, I promise not to leak it. <laughs> Listeners, thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Take care.